It has been really hot and dry this summer. I think I've mowed my lawn twice, three times maybe this summer. I know I haven't mowed it in about five weeks. It's kind of awesome, really, when you think about it. This is my kind of summer. Here at the church, on the church property, it takes between two and three hours to mow the grass. Right? It's a long time, especially in the heat, 95, 100 degrees out there. It's, I don't want to say it's hard work. I mean, the mower's doing the work, but it's not easy. It's hard. Now imagine you're sitting on the mower, out of the generosity of your heart, you've decided to volunteer and mow for Orchard Community Church. And so you get out there on our nice new John Deere mower, it's really fun, and you're sitting on there and you spend three hours, you're out there just cooking in the hot sun and you're exhausted and sweat's pouring off your face. You finally get done. And you happen to turn around and look and not a single blade of grass has been cut. And at that moment, you remember that time that Dave O'Lear sat with you and taught you how to use the mower, and he showed you that one lever that turns on the blades. <laughs> and you remember that you forgot to turn on the blades. Now, how would you feel in that moment? I would think you'd feel pretty frustrated. Now, let me just say, I can't imagine you'd go the whole three hours without noticing that the blade wasn't on, okay? But just imagine. Now, let's switch perspectives, though, because as the mower, you would feel really frustrated and upset that you or probably somebody else would have to do it all over again. You'd be upset. What if you were the grass? What if you were a blade of grass out in the field in the front of the church? Front of the, front of the church is that way. <laughs> you get all turned around inside. Okay, and you're out there and you hear the mower coming and the ground begins to shake and you're thinking, oh, no, are you kidding me? Do you know how dry it's been all summer and I've taken just what little moisture I can find and I grew just a little bit and now you're going to come along and lop off my head. I mean, really? And the mower comes and it's getting closer and the ground is rattling more and you're shaking and you're fearful and you're thinking, I can't go on, I can't make it through this and it passes over and you go, huh. I'm okay. The blades weren't spinning. The guy forgot to turn it on. This is great. See, the perspective is very different, isn't it? As the blade of grass, in that moment, you're thinking, this is it. I can't go on. I can't go through this. And it's a moment of incredible stress and disaster and struggle. But if that part of that struggle which is the greatest threat, has been removed, your experience in that moment is extremely different. Open with me to Psalm 129. We're going to look at three psalms today, 129, 130, and 131. We're in a series on the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 psalms that we believed were used by the Israelites as they would walk to Jerusalem, at least three times a year that we know of, to offer sacrifices at these festivals. And it appears that this was a sort of psalm or, or hymn book that they would sing or, or hymn scripture that they would recite. We're not really sure. But each one of them says a song of ascents. And they're interesting. Why would God want His people to be thinking these things as they went to sacrifice to Him? if it was the Day of Atonement, to go and have their sins atoned uh, for by their high priest, why these things to prepare their hearts? 
We're going to look at two things that we've been set free from. This constant, annual, maybe three times a year, reminder to them of things they've been set free from. And then one thing at the end about the hope that they have in their freedom. So let's start by reading Psalm 129. Psalm 129, a song of a sense, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. We're going to start by looking at this truth from this psalm that we've been set free from circumstances. We've been set free from those things outside of ourselves that weigh on us, that might even seem to attack us. We go through times in life that are difficult, maybe even oppressive. Hardships could be loss of work. It could be a change in the culture or the political climate. It could actually be persecution because of our beliefs. It could be a family member or a friend that's turned against us. And moment by moment, we think, I can't go on. How am I going to make it through this? It's like every conversation, every instant, every time of turning on the news is like you're being stabbed with a knife and just twisted over and over again. You think, I can't make it anymore. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're going through a time in your life right now That you think, man, does God even know what is going on in my life, in my world? Because I don't know if I can make it another moment here. We go through many difficult times. And here in the Psalms of Ascent, God puts into their history, into their tradition, a psalm that reminds them that as the people of God, they went through numerous times where they were overwhelmed. Numerous, oppressive times. We could look at several. All the way back in Egypt, they were enslaved. God had these great promises to Abraham, and they kind of start with them being slaves. And then he saves them, and that's wonderful, and he leads them to the desert, which was really awful. And then eventually he gets them to the promised land, which was great, but they were totally unfaithful, which was really awful. And then eventually he brings in foreign armies against them, that was awful too, and they go into exile. And it seems like their world is falling apart constantly. And yet, as they recite their history, they remember in these times of being greatly oppressed, God was faithful. He delivered them time after time after time. And there's two images here that are sort of intertwined or combined to form this oppression. One is kind of like a slave being whipped. says, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, verse 3. In that time period, when they whipped someone, it wasn't just a little crack. The whip would grab the skin and peel it away in ribbons. And it was like somebody had taken a plow to your back. And they would bear the scars of it, probably for the rest of their life. But the other image that's going along with that is sort of, it's a plowman plowing a field. Now, we think that's a wonderful thing. Well, crops are going to grow, but what if you're the field? And that blade is just carving into you. 
And maybe you've been through times in your life where you just feel like that plowman has just got that plow and the oxen are trampling you down and it's just uprooting your life moment after moment after moment. It's uprooting your life and there's no end in sight back and forth and back and forth. That is a time of oppression. And there are people we get very angry out, maybe justly so. Why are they doing this to us? Why is the world doing this to us? Why is the culture doing this to us? Why is my family member doing this to us? Why is my boss or my coworker? Why? Every single day. But look at the deliverance. In the end of verse 2, they've greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory. Why? Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Now check this out. Okay, let's use the first picture of the slave being beaten. Sometimes they would tie their wrists together, maybe tie them to a post or something so they could whip them. Now imagine somebody comes along and there's the slave tied up just being whipped and somebody snips that cord. The slave gets up, walks away, but the evil person that's whipping them just keeps going. And the slave's over here looking back going, what are you doing? You're not hurting me anymore. You're still going through the motions over there of the hurt and the pain, but I'm free from it. Imagine the plowman in the field and, and you're the field that's just carving out your back and your life and it's totally being uprooted constantly. You're thinking, I can't go on. And God steps in and He takes the cords that tie the oxen to the plow and He cuts them. And the oxen keep walking. And the plowman's just there. He thinks, oh, I'm getting this guy good, man. He's really hurting. I'm really hurting him right now. But the plow's not going anywhere. Because the thing that moved the plow through that really caused the trouble is gone. That's the picture here. God has stepped in in His righteousness. And He says, yes, the circumstance is awful. Yes, those people might be trying to hurt you. But I have stepped in and I've cut the cord. And their hurt will not be the end of you. It doesn't define you. It doesn't have to be the overwhelming thing in your life. I have cut the cord. Why? Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. To say the Lord is righteous means so many different things, but if I could sum it up, it means God is doing what God always does. He's being God. To be righteous for the Lord is to do what He does to fulfill His promises and to be faithful constantly. It's not like God looks down in our suffering and goes, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I should help them out. No, He steps in in His faithfulness and He says, look, I've promised you and I will be faithful. The Lord is righteous. And because of the Lord's righteousness, it means that so much of the effort of this world against who God is and what He does and against God's people, and even just in their own sin, it's wasted effort. It's futile. It's meaningless. He says in uh, verse 5, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. It's kind of a picture of an army coming against a fortified city. And there they are. Yeah, we've got this. And they're camped around them. And they've left their family. They've left their homes. And they're coming against their city. And man, we're going to beat this city. And they get there and go, Oh my goodness, we can't do this. And they hang their heads in shame. And they turn around. And they walk all the way back home for nothing. And they walk in the door and their wife's like, hey, how'd it go? I couldn't do it. We we just left. We couldn't do it. May those who come against Zion 
That's the mountain of the Lord, the people of God. It's, it's sort of like saying, may those who turn against God and his people, they'll just be turned back in shame. Verse 6, may they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. And if you're a farmer and you've got crops growing on your roof, that's pretty convenient. That's wonderful. You wake up one day, hey, there's crops on my roof. This is great. I don't have to go out in the field. This is going to be so much easier. The world thinks it's found the easy way out by attacking us. The people that are hurting you and injuring you in your life, they, they think it's easy for them. It says, just like those crops, that maybe a seed fell and a little bit of dust, a little bit of dirt on the roof, and yeah, it found a place to, to pop up, but it's not going to last. The sun's going to scorch it. The, the guy's going to get up there with his sickle one day and go, this is great, I'm going to harvest this crop. Oh, no, there's nothing there. It's just meaningless. It's wasted. It's a fruitless waste. Verse 8, it's an unblessed waste. Waste. This is interesting because it says... May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. The psalm is saying there are people that we should not want God to bless. Now, that should kind of hurt us a little bit. Wait a minute, God shouldn't bless somebody? But look at what it's talking about. It's talking about people that are out to hurt others. And in the moment of them trying to hurt, it is saying, I cannot ask God's blessing on that. I can't ask God's blessing on something that's just going to keep on hurting other people. And part of the reason I can't ask God's blessing on that is because God doesn't bless that. I know that's not what God wants. There is a blessing from God that we all receive. Anybody who is ever born, ever. We have the blessing of life. We have the blessing of waking up in the morning. We have the blessing of drawing one breath after another that we don't deserve. We didn't pay for it. We didn't earn and We didn't cause. But it's there. Life is a blessing. And there are other blessings throughout our life. It, it just rained this morning. We needed rain. We don't deserve that rain. It didn't rain on us here at Orchard because we're so awesome. And, you know, next door at the neighbors, not any particular neighbor, but it didn't, you know, like it should skip over them because they're not so awesome. No, it rained because God is blessing people. But there's also the blessing in following who God is and what he's doing. There's the blessing in trusting in who He is. And that blessing is for those that are following Him and are trusting in Him. And these people, because they're attacking the people of the Lord, are missing out on that blessing. But those who are in Christ, you've been set free from the attacks of this world. You've been set free from the attacks of those who are out to hurt you. I'm not saying you won't go through the attacks. The mower's still going. The plowman's still there. The oxen are still moving. The whip might still be going. I'm saying its ability to hurt you has been cut. You've been set free. But we need to be honest. Because as we look at difficulties in our life, it's really easy to look outside ourselves. It's really easy to look to our political situations, our work situations, our family situations, and say, oh my goodness, those people, they're so messed up. And we fail to take a good hard look in the mirror. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, some of the things that oppress us the most, that hurt us the most, are our own fault. We love to blame everybody else. But it's hard to take a hard look at our own sin and say, I'm stuck because of what I'm doing, not just because of what others are doing. Look at Psalm 130. 
Psalm 130 is a cry for help. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in His Word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Psalm 130 says, not only have we been set free from our external circumstances and the sin of others and the sin of the world, we've been set free from our own sin. Now at first glance, it seems like it's covering the same ground. Mercy, help from God. But there's a couple keys here. Look at verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins... Lord, who could stand? Verse two or verse four. But with you there is forgiveness. And then if we skip down to verse eight, well, at the end of seven, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. Verse eight, He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This person is crying out not because others are hurting him, but because his own sin is hurting him. What he needs saved from is not some external circumstance. It's his own internal sin. And he's crying out for mercy to the one who saves. And he cries out because verse 2 says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist knows God is listening. Do you ever go through times and you think, well, God doesn't know what's going on. Or maybe, and I've met with many people, they say, well, pastor, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, what's going on in my life. You don't know what I've done in my past. There's no way God can hear me. There's no way He can save me. I've just done things that are too bad. And I say, no. Scripture says God hears you. He sees you. He knows what's going on. Verses 3 and 4, and He forgives. But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence, serve you. It's easy to think that what we have done is so great that God can never forget it or forgive it. And yet if we truly look at who Jesus Christ is as the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing Son of God, then our sins are small in comparison to the grace and the mercy and the salvation and the forgiveness that Christ has given us. There is nothing you have done, are doing, or will do that is greater than God's ability to forgive you through Jesus Christ. Nothing. And sometimes I think in our sin, and this is part of the lie of sin, we think so much of ourselves, well, my sin is so great that God can't save it. No. Your sin is not too great for God. He says in verse 4, this forgiveness should lead to, the NIV says reverence, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Other translations have fear, which I think is a better translation. It's an uncomfortable translation. Wow, God has forgiven me. He saved me so that I can be in His presence and be afraid. Wait a minute, what? That doesn't make sense. But if we really understand the greatness of who God is and the greatness of His salvation... We don't come to God then as some buddy-buddy and this warm, fuzzy relationship of, hey God, what's up? That's great, let me tell you about my day. We come to God and say, oh my goodness, you are God and I am not. 
And we walk humbly with Him. In a couple weeks, we'll start our fall series. We're going to talk about biblical wisdom. It's going to start the weekend after the Doyles are here. We're going to look throughout this fall all the way up to Christmas at what is biblical wisdom. The Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. And we're going to start that series with a couple weeks on the fear of the Lord. Because I think we've missed it. I think we've overlooked that the Bible says over and over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've lost that true, reverent, awestruck fear of the Lord. Forgiveness leads to proper fear. Forgiveness leads to faithful watching. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Now this is interesting because if you're a watchman and your job is to wait until the morning comes, how do you do that? Can you do anything to make the morning come a little faster? Oh, if I just work this hard and I do this and and then the morning will come quicker. No, morning's going to come when the morning comes. So I imagine as a watchman, it'd be really easy to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because, well, the morning's going to come whenever it wants to come, so who cares? So do they just sit around playing poker or drinking root beer or something? I mean, do they just take it easy? The watchman can't cause the morning to come. We don't cause God to fulfill His promises. We don't cause Christ to come back. We're waiting for that. But do we just sit around doing nothing while we wait? The good watchman is faithful as he waits. He's obedient as he waits. Some of us have been Christians for a while now. And maybe you received Christ at some point in your life with great excitement. Just overwhelming emotions. This is so great. And you go out and you're sharing the word with others and you're getting into Bible studies and you're growing and growing and growing and growing and then it kind of gets old after a while. And we stop watching as the watchman waits for the morning. And we get comfortable and we get complacent. Jesus Christ is still coming. He is still at work. And we need to watch and wait in faithful obedience. And then at the end, verses 7 and 8, forgiveness leads to hope. Israel, put your hope in the Lord For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Remember, as they chanted or sung this, they were going to the tabernacle or the temple. And at least once a year, they would have been going for the Day of Atonement. The day that the high priest would have taken the sacrificial animal killed that animal, applied the blood in the tabernacle or the temple in the most holy place to atone for all the sins of Israel. To be reminded with you, Lord, there is redemption. I will hope in the salvation that you give. How much better can we say that today? How much more as we think of a God who has sent His Son to die on the cross in our place, who took all of our sin, all of the guilt, all of the punishment, and put it on Jesus Christ, and He died in our place. We're not looking to some repetitive sacrifice that's a symbol of what we hope God will do. We look to the very Son of God who did it for us. Christians, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. 
With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem all his people from their sins. Because he did it in Jesus Christ. And so we can have hope. Freedom leads to hope. Look at Psalm 131. This is a psalm of hope. It ends at the end, verse 3, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. But it starts with two hope stealers. Verse 1, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Look at verse 3. Hope now and forevermore. The cords of the world that oppress us or other people's sin, they've been cut. The cords of your sin to weigh you down, And to make it so you can't even stand in the presence of your Creator that's been cut too, you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so you have hope. But as I said, I think there's two hope stealers here. The first one is pride. The psalmist says, My heart is not proud, Lord. Why? Because if you know the truth of Psalm 129, that it's only He that has saved you from the exterior things in the world, and Psalm 130, that it's only He who has saved you from your own sin, what basis do we have to be proud? Pride steals hope because it gives credit to us instead of the one in whom we hope. And so when we go through difficult times, when things are great and we're, we're going through these times of great, and we say, oh, look how great I am. And then difficulty comes and we go, oh, I don't know what to do about this. It's somebody else's fault. And we don't have hope because we lost that trust in the one we're supposed to hope in. I truly believe that pride can never survive a true understanding of the gospel. Where is the place for pride and arrogance in the Christian life? The Gospel says we are wicked, wretched sinners that apart from Christ are eternally destined to hell. It's only because Jesus left heaven, came here, lived among us, took our sins upon Himself, died in our place, rose from the grave, and promises eternal life to all who believe. It's only because of Him that we're saved. Not anything to do with anything that we can take credit for. Where is the room for pride? And yet, so often, it seems like as Christians, we walk around like we're so much better than everybody else. And we we hold up Christian leaders that just ooze and drip pride and arrogance. We think, oh, they're so bold. They're not bold. They're arrogant. Oh, they're so brave. That's not brave. It's arrogant. A true understanding of the gospel must root out pride and arrogance in our life. But there's a flip side then. Because some Christians go to the other extreme. They say, oh, I'm just nothing and I need God for everything. God, I need you in this moment and this is falling apart and God, I need you in this moment. God, I need you here and I need you here and I need you here. And it becomes this sort of whiny, conditional faith. The psalmist says, I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. There's a difference between a a weaned child, right? A child that's no longer getting the food from the mother and and a newborn that's constantly getting food from the mom. Now, I think I can speak on this with at least a little bit of authority as somewhat of a bystander, but we've had four children. I've seen this a few times, right? 
And I know, and I think I can speak for my wife, there are times in the newborn phase that, that she kind of feels like she's just there to feed them. And it's sort of like here you have this wonderful bundle of joy, but they just look at you as a, a sort of vending machine. <laughs> Fair enough? Yeah. The baby wants food constantly. And if they're not getting what they want, what do they do? They cry. So you're holding the child and you think, oh, this wonderful tender moment. Ah, feed me! Oh, okay. Ah, change me! Put me to bed! It's constantly, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to cry. Christians, we go through these phases of God's not giving me what I want, so I'm just going to complain louder. I'm not saying I'm awesome. I'm not saying I'm great. I know I'm not. I'm trusting in the Lord, but God, now you've got to do this right now. And it's a hidden pride. Because in that thought, there's an arrogance that says, God has to do what I want, and he has to do it right now. And it's conditional. If I'm not getting what I want from God, then I'm not going to trust in him. If our faith is always conditional on God, doing what we want or giving us what we want, It's not faith. It's not really trusting Him, is it? It's us sitting on the throne of our lives and the universe and telling God what to do. It masquerades as humility. But it's actually just another form of arrogance. And these two attitudes, this arrogance and this whiny, I'm going to get what I want and my trust in you is conditional based on whether or not I'm going to get what I want. i got to tell you, as I look at our culture... These two monsters, if I could say, are fed by our culture constantly. I mean, to be the self-made person who says, look at me and everything I've done, that's like the American way. To be the person that says, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to yell louder, I'm going to be the squeaky wheel until I get what I want, that's kind of the American way too, isn't it? And as Christians, as people of the Lord, we need to say, no, That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this psalmist is saying, my heart's not proud. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know who I'm not. And I'll let him be God because I know I'm not. And the psalmist says, and and I'm not climbing up into God's lap just screaming and crying for him to give me what I want. I'm climbing up into God's lap and saying, you're God and I trust you. You'll give me what I need, what you know I need, when I need it. I'm just happy to be with you. Hope, both now and forever, is not conditional on events or feelings, but on God's faithfulness. And it points us to Jesus Christ. Because nothing that this world does and nothing that we do will ever change the fact that God sent His Son to die for us. Look, there will be times that you will hear the mower in your life coming. There will be times that you hear and you feel the mower just sitting right over your head and it's terrifying and you think you're never going to get out of it. But I'm telling you from the truth of God's Word that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the ability of that moment to eternally damage you has been cut. The ability of that moment to define who you are and define your future is broken. You are free in Jesus Christ.
the hurt of this world and the people around us will roar and shake the ground. But Christ has cut the cord and the world cannot ultimately hurt us. In Christ there is hope. Let's let go of our arrogance. Let's go, let go of our ignorance and our conditional faith. Let's grow up from that. And let's continue to trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. And I pray that would be a freedom that we don't just confess as a, a doctrine, some theological statement, but a freedom that we apply to the situations of our lives. And so when someone hurts us, to say, I know who I am in Christ. And I can love that person through this, but I also know that I'm safe. And God, when we look at our own hearts and our own sinfulness, to be able to say, I need to take responsibility, but I also know I'm forgiven in Christ. And He's at work in me. Hope means, God, that You're not done with us yet. That this moment, this feeling, this situation, whatever it is, is never the end of us. Because You're not done. And You are righteous and Your promises will stand firm. And so I pray if there's anyone here going through that time right now of struggle, may they look to Christ. May they know who they are in Christ. May they accept the forgiveness and the security that is available through Christ. And God, may we live with hope. A hope that has driven out arrogance and insecurity and whiny conditional faith. And a hope that trusts in You. In whose name we pray. Amen.